This morning, we are going to look, uh, we're in week two of a 66-week sermon series through the whole Bible called The Thread, uh, following Jesus through the whole Bible. And in it, we are looking at one chapter out of each book of the Bible. Our city groups and people personally, the, the week before, are studying an overview of the whole book, and then we are just taking a snippet in each one of the 66 different books, and we're seeing how it connects to Jesus. This morning, we're going to look at the people of God as they come to the, to the base of Mount Sinai, and God makes a covenant with them after rescuing them out of Egypt. So I'm going to pray, and then after I pray, there'll just be a two-minute short video kind of giving you an overview of what takes place in Exodus, and then we'll dive in. Sound good? Sound good? Oh, thank you. I'm glad you're awake. This can be good. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word and to not only learn it, but to be shaped by it. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to speak to every single person here. Speak to me as I speak. Speak to the person who's here for the 1,000th time and has maybe read the Ten Commandments thousands of times. And God, speak to the person who's maybe here in church for the first time, wrestling through, contemplating the claims that you make. God, would you speak to all of us, through me or in spite of me, but would you speak? I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Exodus was written by Moses sometime between 1440 and 1400 BC. The story follows Israel's time in Egypt and their journey to the Promised Land. Exodus picks up 400 years after Genesis, where Abraham's family has grown into a people now called Israel, living as slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh. In the midst of a decree to wipe out the Jewish people altogether, we're introduced to Moses. God appoints him as leader of the Israelites, the one to lead them out of bondage. God sends a series of 10 plagues over Egypt as divine justice against Pharaoh. And even after allowing the Israelites to leave, Pharaoh sends an army to capture the Israelites. God miraculously parts the sea for Israel, delivering his people. From here, the Israelites begin to wander in the wilderness. They quickly forget their deliverance from their oppressors and complain against God. Yet God responds with mercy and provision. The people encamp at the foot of Mount Sinai, where God invites Israel into a new covenant with him to establish a standard of living for the people. Through obeying these laws, Israel will become a nation set apart to represent God to the world as promised to Abraham. God extends this incredible access to himself, but Israel ignores God, choosing their own path. In Exodus, we see God's miraculous efforts to free the Israelites from hunger, slavery, their own wandering, and ultimate genocide. However, God is faithful to his promises, even when Israel rebels again and again. So the book of Exodus breaks in half pretty cleanly. The first half, chapters 1 to 18, tell the story of God showing up and rescuing the descendants of Abraham his people from slavery and oppression in Egypt. It tells the story of God crushing Pharaoh and leading his people out of the land. Chapters 19 and 40 happen at the base of Mount Sinai, where God makes a covenant with his people by telling them how they are to live as his distinct people in the world. 
If you've ever tried to read through the Bible in a year or read through the whole storyline of the Bible, one of the things that you'll notice is that after about Exodus 24, it becomes a slog. Up till that point, it's nothing but like narrative and story and it's easy to trace. And then from about Exodus 24 to halfway through Numbers, it's laws. Often obscure laws, laws that seem incredibly foreign to us. The, the narrative doesn't move forward very much at all. And so that's often where your Bible reading plan stalls out. But imagine with me chapter, six, or chapter 19, where all of God's people come to the base of Mount Sinai. And when they do, God's glory appears on the mountain in a visible way. There is smoke and thunder and, and the sound of trumpets. And in the midst of all of that, they hear God's voice speak. What does he say? He says the words of Exodus 20. He gives them the ten words or the ten commandments. He gives them a summary of what it looks like to love him with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves. It's what we know as the ten commandments and it shapes the story from here moving forward. Would you read with me Exodus chapter 20? And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or any, of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that which is in the water under the earth, or in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days... The Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off. And said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is God's word. What does it mean? To love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your strength, and with all your might. 
What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, we don't have to guess. God tells us. And these Ten Commandments break down quite simply into Commandment 1 to 4. What does it look like to love God with every fiber of our being? Commandments 5 to 10, what does it look like to love our neighbor as ourself? God speaks these Ten Commandments or these Ten Words. He says, this is how I want you to live as my people. And in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, there are a total of 613 different commandments. But these 10 give us a summary, give us a picture of what the good life is and what God requires of his people Now, I could take these commandments and probably spend a week on each and not plumb the depths of it. That would be a good use of our time. But rather than doing that this morning, I want you to see their purpose for the people of the life, or for the, their purpose for Israel and their purpose for us. I want to make sure that as Christians, we understand that what God was doing 3,500 years ago in giving these commands is still relevant for us today. So I want to give you five insights into the law that will help you understand what God was doing and what God is still doing through it. The order of the law as it relates to God's salvation, the person of the law as it reveals God's character to us, the goodness of the law in that the law and the life submitted to the law or commandments of God is the good life, the verdict of the law, which is that the law will remind us all of our need of a Savior, and the mission of the law, which, the, which is this, the people of God were to be a light or a blessing in the nations by living under the rule of God and revealing to a watching world what God is like. So for the note takers, the order of the law, the person of the law, the goodness of the law, the verdict of the law, and the mission of the law, you're welcome. First, the order of the law, and why it's significant. As it relates to salvation, notice by this time in Exodus 20, God has already made his unconditional promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob that he will bless them and turn them into a mighty nation and bless all of the other nations through them, that God will give them a land to inhabit That's about 400 years before this particular moment. Not only that, but God has already partly delivered on that promise by saving his people from slavery and oppression. He has rescued them by the strength of his hand, not by their moral performance. He has then led them to the base of Mount Sinai. It is only after God has saved them and done all of this for him that he now gives them his moral instruction on how they are to live. Here's the point I'm trying to make. The law of God was never intended to be a way for us to earn life. It was always intended to be a way of life for God's people. Or maybe more specifically for them, the law was never intended to be a way for God's people to earn life in the Old Testament. It was meant to be a way of life for God's people. We need to beat that concept into our mind continually until we actually believe it. The law doesn't earn us life. It doesn't put God in our debt. It doesn't make us righteous before him because we don't do it. But it is for those that God saves by his grace through faith a way of life or a way to truly live. The law that God gives to his people on Mount Sinai wasn't a way to curry favor, but was a way to experience his blessing 
as they live in line with his creative design. It's the same for us. We are not to look at the Ten Commandments as an invitation to a self-salvation project. It was never meant to be that. It wasn't for the people of Israel, and it's certainly not for those of us who claim the name of Jesus Christ and salvation in him. So if the purpose of the law wasn't to make us worthy before God, what was it? Well, the four other points I make. Second, the law reveals to us the character of God, the, the, what he's like, what he values, what he loves. The purpose of the law is to reflect to his people what God cares about and how he wants them to act. This will become apparent of what God values as we walk through each of the commandments. The third thing is that the law reveals to us what the good life is. One of the biggest lies that humanity believes, we are constantly being dragged back to it, is this, that God doesn't want us to have any fun, that he is stingy toward us, that life under his rule is a drag, so that anything good, anything really fun, he forbids Therefore, in order for us to be really happy, we need to rule ourselves. We need to determine what is good and what is evil ourselves rather than to submit to the oppressive, stringent rule of God. That's a lie, but so many of us believe it's true. In fact, that's exactly what Adam and Eve chose to believe about God. And we can already see, even at this point in the story, that rather than bringing freedom by choosing good and evil ourselves, it leads to greater bondage and destruction and evil for the people that God has made. See, when you begin with the wrong premise that God is stingy, that he is tyrannical and out to limit our freedom, and if we have any fun, he is right there to smite us with a lightning bolt then your tendency is going to be to look at these commandments and think about all the things that you want to do, but you can't. And that is the exact wrong way to look at it. Rather, I would have you look at it this way, that true freedom is not living in a world where everyone gets to do whatever it is that they want. That is terrifying, isn't it? No, true freedom is living in a world where everyone can flourish and thrive the way that they were designed to flourish and thrive. And, and that, my friends, is the heart of God revealed in these commandments to us. So let's look at each of the ten. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Now this might seem obvious, but the people of God lived in a time where they worshipped multiple gods, where there was a god of the Nile, and there was a god of the sun, and there was a god of fertility, and there was a god of agriculture. And God, in giving this command, is saying, I am the only true God. You shall not worship any other imposter gods but me alone. Now, keep in mind, up in the story in Exodus chapter 5 to 15, one of the purposes of the plagues that God decried on Egypt was to expose all of the gods of Egypt as being false gods. One of the reasons for the frogs or the blotting out of the sun or the messing with the Nile or the gnats was to show God's power, Yahweh's power, over these false gods of Egypt. They were often pictured as a frog or as the sun god or the fertility god. Therefore, God's first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is the first and foundational. In fact, you can't break any of the other nine commandments unless you have first broken that one. That's what Martin Luther said. 
If God is God, then he is to be worshipped and obeyed in all things. And to break any of his laws means that foundationally, you have allowed something else to become your God, to identify you, the one whose approval you can't live without or accomplishment you can't live without. Which leads very closely into the second command. You shall not have any idols. God says you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I the Lord am a jealous God. What is an idol? Certainly it is an image or statue of something that you can bow down to and worship as a God. That's what the ancients often did. But deeper than that, an idol is something that you take into your heart as a God replacement. The ancients literally bowed down before their idols and sacrificed to them. Our idolatry tends to be a lot more subtle today. We allow people or good desires or even noble ambitions to be things that we can't possibly live without. And thus they become idols or gods in our heart. Take, for instance, a young man or a woman who wants to find a spouse desperately. Most of us would agree they desire a very good thing. But what if they desire it to the degree that everything else in their life becomes subservient to that particular desire? We would say that that person has made an idol out of marriage, out of a potential spouse, that that person has become for them a God replacement without which they can't be happy. But here's the dirty little secret about idolatry. Whatever we put in the place of God lets us down. It doesn't satisfy. See, the good gifts of God are meant to be just that, gifts, not God replacements. But when we idolize something and we get it, often it's the absolute worst outcome because we realize this is not what I thought it was. See, the things that we tend to idolize when they let us down, we also then tend to demonize and reject because they didn't fulfill like we thought they should. We are told here that God is a jealous God And he will not share his glory with an idol or the worship of another God. He loves us too much to allow us to be satisfied with lesser things. Before we move on, I just have to ask from Commandments 1 and 2, have you allowed anything in your life to become more important to you than God? A God replacement. If you think about something, if you recognize something, turn from it today and trust the Lord. Recognize that that thing will never deliver what you most and deepest desire. Only God can do that. Commandment number three. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain. Verse seven says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord in vain? I think it certainly means that we should not use God's name as a curse word. How can we take something that is so holy and good and beautiful and use it so callously, flippantly, disrespectfully that we invoke the name of God when we're upset about something? But I don't think taking the name of the Lord in vain is simply limited to that. I think it also includes invoking the name of God to say what God has not said. Have you ever heard someone say, God told me to do this? 
or God told me to do that, often it's an innocent thing where you're like, well, maybe God did tell you to do that. Sometimes it's, it's something that God has actually expressly forbidden. Why is it that we often in our conversations say, God told me this or God told me that when it's something that isn't clearly laid out in the scriptures? It's because when we do that, it gives it a greater sense of authority, unquestioned as it were. Well, if God told you that, then who am I to push back or to say otherwise? God tells his people, do not invoke my name to sanctify your own plans and desires, my name is holy. I think that's what it means to take the Lord's name in vain. Have you ever said, God told me to do such and such without being fully sure that God was actually telling you that? I think, brothers and sisters, that's taking the name of the Lord in vain. Commandment number four, honors the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For six days the Lord made the heaven heaven and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy." God appeals here to creation to say, I did not make you to be productive 24-7, so stop trying. You are not God, and that is a good thing. As an act of faith, I want you to set aside one day a week from, to cease from your labors and your work and enter into the goodness of my rest, enjoying the things that I have made. This is the good life, and this is what I'm asking of my people, he says. Now, there's some debate as to whether or not the the command of the Sabbath is, is a way that we love God or a way that we love our neighbor. And as we read it, we see that it's both. It is certainly an act of faith declaring that, God, you are God and I am not, and the world can spin just fine without me. God, you created in seven days or six days and you rested on the seventh day and now you invite me to truly live. And so a way of honoring and worshiping God is to obey him in this. But if you notice, the commandment is not just for those who can afford to take a Sabbath day, but it's for all the people, the sojourner, the children, even the livestock and the fields, that this is also a way that we love our neighbor. This is an issue of justice then for the people of God. It is not just those who are rich and wealthy that get to take a day off and everybody else gets to do the work, but all of God's people are to take a day off. And so we see it's also a way of loving our neighbor. Now this particular command often gets really obscured because of the day that Jesus lived. 1,500 years later, the people of God had turned this good gift of a Sabbath day into a joyless legalism, a drudgery. In trying to parse out all of the things that they could do and couldn't do, that years and years of of rabbinical teaching had piled up so that people were almost not free to do anything that would even remotely resemble work, and the Sabbath day had kind of turned into almost like a legalistic gotcha day rather than the joy and the gift that was it intended to be. And so Jesus comes in, and he begins to talk about the heart of the Sabbath, and he, he, he confronts those who, in legalistic adherence to it, have sucked all of the joy out of it. And sucked all of God's purposes out of it. 
Now, if Jesus' day was filled with a joyless legalism, I would say we probably have the opposite problem. We are so scared of being legalists when it comes to the Sabbath that so many of us never take any time off. We can justify anything that we do as being, oh, that's a joy for me to do. And so all, all of a sudden, every day of the week looks like every other day of the week, and we never stop and rest. Let me be as clear as I can. In this commandment to honor the Sabbath, it is an invitation from God for you to enter into his rest, to acknowledge by faith that you are not God, and that is a really, really good thing. If you were to look at your life right now, would you say that you have embraced rest as part of your life and rhythm, or do you feel the need to be productive 24-7? Some of you guys, in fear of being legalists, are running yourself ragged, and you're not experiencing the life that God has invited you into. You're not taking by faith this roadmap, as it were, to truly experience and flourish in the life that God has given you. You're not created for 24-7 productivity. We had a lot of college students in the first service, and let me say, It's hard sometimes to take a Sabbath or to pause to rest from your work, especially as a student. You know why? Because you're never done, right? You're always thinking in the back of your mind, I could study more, or I have this project that if I don't get on top of, then it's just going to continue to pile up and I'll be overwhelmed. You feel that at all? But here's the thing, students. That doesn't change. Life doesn't all of a sudden slow down where you have absolutely nothing to do. Usually, you have to intentionally cease and enjoy God's rest. Imagine living like 60, 70 years ago where hardly any store was open on a Sunday. It would be a little easier to rest, wouldn't it? We wouldn't have a thousand options for us to do to entertain ourselves or to shop or to run errands or to this or that. Now, don't hear me in the sense I'm not putting forth a new legalism. I'm not. I don't need to bind your consciences. But I do need you to see God's heart, and I want you to rest. I want you to actually believe his word and begin to carve out in your life a regular rhythm of work and of ceasing that you might experience his good life. Commandment number five, honor your father and mother. That it that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says this is the only one of the commands that has an accompanying promise with it, that your days may be long in the land or that it may go well for you. The command here to show honor and respect to your parents is not one of blind allegiance or obedience, but rather to honor their authority, to respect their position in your life, And that when you do that, generally it goes well for you. Kids, your parents actually know you really well. Sometimes even better than you know yourself. For all of us, do you treat your parents with honor and respect as do their position? Or do you silently scoff at them, mock them, roll your eyes at them, thinking they're crazy? Some of you guys are like, Pastor Kyle, my parents are crazy. You should see what they post on Facebook. And yet still this command to honor and to respect them is binding on us. 
Not in the sense that we do it in order to live, it was never the intent, but that this is the good life, that we ought to show honor and respect to those who are in positions of authority above us, even when we don't agree with their decisions. Now, the last five commandments are a series of short, rapid fire, you shall not. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet. These short commandments get at the heart of what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves. Don't do anything that you wouldn't want done to you, but also act in the positive way, in a way that reflects God's character. And so we see, not only is there a prohibition, but there is a do this. You shall not murder because God values human life. We are created in his image. And because, everyone, because of that, everyone has immense value and dignity and worth. Their life has meaning and should not be prematurely ended, but rather seen and held in awe, regardless of their skin color or whether they have a disability or not, or what stage of gestation they are in the womb, they bear the image and the likeness of God. You shall not murder, it says. Additionally, do not commit adultery. Why? Because God is a faithful and covenant-keeping God. God's people should be as well. God is not against human sexuality. In fact, he created it. But he puts certain parameters and boundaries on it because he wants us to experience the goodness that he has made. And so he says, do not commit adultery because he is a faithful God. Because how would you like to be in a relationship where the other person has no, has no qualms? Or in relationships where people feel no sense of loyalty or jealousy. God is a covenant-keeping God. In fact, in the Old Testament, one of the charges that God says to his people is that you have committed spiritual adultery. I have been a husband to you and you have played the harlot on me. It's one of the reasons why he brings his judgment because they hoard themselves out after other gods. Spiritual adultery, which is an unbelievable betrayal of the Lord. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Don't take what doesn't belong to you. God will provide for you. Do not lie because God always tells the truth. He is true with no falsehood. This means don't even lie if it's advantageous for you, but tell the truth even if it costs you something. Do not covet what isn't yours because if you do, you will never be happy. God has given you exactly what you need. And those who are always coveting what someone else have never find contentment and peace. I wish I had time to go into each of these commands and unpack it a little bit more. But can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world where murder and killing was rampant? None of us would feel safe. Where, where no one was faithful to their promises or covenants. Where the person you loved and committed your life to thought nothing about cheating on you. Where people could take whatever they want, even if it was yours and property wasn't respected. If they were stronger, they could just take it from you. Where you couldn't trust if anyone was ever telling you the truth and you had a hard time figuring out what was actually true. Where no one was content with what they had but always had to accumulate more and more and more to fill a void inside them that no possession could ever fill. It doesn't sound like freedom at all, does it? It sounds like a nightmare. It sounds like the worst kind of slavery, and if I'm honest, it sounds a lot like our world, doesn't it? 
God shows us the good life by inviting us to a different way to live. Anytime you're tempted to think that God doesn't know what he's talking about, look at the alternatives and honestly ask yourself, is that really what I want? What if everyone else acted the way that I want to act? Would that be freedom or bondage? God's law and commands show us again and again and again what the good life is. So, the order of the law, the person of the law, the goodness of the law, fourth, the verdict of the law. The law reveals our need for a Savior. See, even a cursory glance through these commandments makes one thing abundantly clear to every single person in the room. None of us have kept it perfectly, have we? See, if salvation was a matter of self-salvation and keeping the righteous requirements of the law, not one of us has a squeaky clean record. And that's kind of the point. We must admit our need for salvation because our ability to keep God's commandments all the time is impossible. We haven't done it. Some of you guys are like, Pastor Kyle, that sounds a little harsh. That sounds a little overbearing. I'm pretty good. I've done a pretty decent job of keeping these. Well, guys, that's not what the standard is. If we want to play the law game, we got to be perfect. Imagine saying, I've only murdered one person, judge. Back off a little bit. (laughs) Wouldn't work very well, would it? Additionally, when Jesus comes onto the scene... He is often accused of not caring very much about the law. In fact, it's the traditions of the elders and their interpretations of the law that Jesus doesn't care very much for. When Jesus has an opportunity to clarify what he believes about God's law, he says, you know, actually, you thought the standard was here. It's actually up here. You've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, do not even hate your brother in your heart because hating your brother in in your heart is actually akin to murdering them. You've heard it said... In the Ten Commandments, do not commit adultery. I tell you, anyone who looks with lustful intent upon a woman has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Do we think Jesus cares about the law? Yeah, you thought it was here. It's actually way higher. What's his point? You need what he offers you. You can't do this on your own. But there is one who came and perfectly fulfilled the law. His name is Jesus. Never once did he sin. Never once did he lie or murder or steal or break the Sabbath or have any other God before God. And get that, get this, he he did that to save you, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf so that when you knew you needed saving, you would look to him in faith and receive what his perfect life and his sacrificial death and his victorious resurrection accomplished on your behalf. And then the order of the law makes sense. Just as God didn't save his people from Egypt or just as God saved his people and then gave them the law, so now God saves his people in Jesus Christ and gives us his commandments, gives us his law, not as a way to earn life, but a way to truly live. And then what happens as we read the commandments of God is rather than being a voice of denial or condemnation or judgment, they become to us a promise. You shall not do these things any longer. To the person who's addicted to pornography, he says, you shall not commit adultery. That's not how my people live. To the thief, he says, you shall not steal. 
any longer. To the greedy, he says, you shall not covet. To the murderer, he says, you shall not murder. Why? Because you have a new master now. One who has set you free. One who has now poured his spirit into your new heart that desires nothing more than to obey him and gives you all the resources that you need for life and for godliness. Now this doesn't mean that we never sin again. We still battle the sinful flesh that remains in its old appetites all the time. But it does mean that it is no longer who we are. We now fight the fight of faith and live our lives for him. You shall not, oh, the hope that we have as the people of God. You shall not, oh, the hope that we bring as the people of God to a world that is desperately looking for a different way, which is the fifth reason God gives his law and commands, the mission of the law. The people of God were meant to be a light or a blessing to the nations surrounding them by living under the rule of God and revealing to a watching world what their God was like. Obedience to the law was not just about Israel being happy and receiving the blessings of this covenant. It was also about being a set-apart and distinct people to show the watching world what their God was like. As they obeyed God, they looked different than all of the other nations and peoples of the earth. They were to be drawn to them to learn about the wisdom and the wonder of their God. Now, as we see the story unfold, we see that over and over and over again, they utterly fail at this task. There is a brief moment under the rule of King Solomon where we get a glimpse of what this might possibly look like as the surrounding nations come and marvel at his wealth and at his wisdom as the Queen of Sheba comes from the edges of the known world to learn the wisdom of Solomon and to pay tribute to him. But as quickly as it comes, it goes. In fact, this is one of the reasons that God ultimately brings his judgment upon his people. Because they haven't revealed who he is to the surrounding nations. Rather, they looked like all the surrounding nations themselves. And they were no different. And they sullied his name. So that God had to bring judgment in Ezekiel 36 to vindicate the holiness of his name. And say, that is not who I am and what I'm about. Isn't it interesting that often as people we wear the last name of our family and we represent the values and the ethos of that family or maybe we find ourselves employed by a certain employer and people make jump to conclusions based on our life or our work ethic about our company or about our family or you see how this works? What God is doing with his people is saying, you reflect me, you represent me to a watching world and your, your mission is to reflect me rightly. As you do that, you will be a blessing, not just to yourself, but to all of the peoples of the earth as they see what I am like, as they see a different way of living. They are to be drawn. Brothers and sisters, before we're too quick to point out how stupid and how much they failed, it might be wise to look at our performance the last few decades as the New Testament people of God. We too are to display to a watching world that life under the rule and the reign of King Jesus looks different and brings about blessing. But sadly, the church often doesn't look very different than the world. And when we don't, we fail in one of our most important missions on this planet to commend the Lord to all of the peoples of the earth. 
and to show a countercultural way, a way of blessing under the rule and the reign of God that it is good. So let me review. The order of the law is significant. God gives his people the law after he saves them. The law was never meant to be a way to earn life, but rather a way of life for God's people. The person of the law. The law reveals God's character and goodness to us. The goodness of the law, a life submitted to the law of God, is the good life. It shows how we were created to live. The verdict of the law. The law reveals our need for a savior and should produce in us humility rather than pride. And finally, the mission of the law. The people of God are meant to be a light or a blessing to the nations as we live under the rule and reign of God. We reveal who he is to a watching world. And you guys thought the Old Testament law was irrelevant. It is unbelievably relevant, not as a binding on our conscience, but rather an invitation to truly live in light of our Savior's character. Now, immediately after they agree to these conditions, in chapter 24, Moses goes back up on the mountain, and as he's there learning about the, the tabernacle that is to be, to be built, a, a little mini portable Eden, as it were, the people under Aaron, his brother, bring all of their gold, and they melt it down, and they make for themselves a golden calf and begin to worship it. The glory of God is on top of the mountain in a visible way that they can see. And they're like, you know what I think we should do? We should make an idol. That sounds like a good plan. I mean, it, double face palm, right? Like they just agreed on this covenant of what they were going to do. And they, they don't even make it weeks before they fail. God says, that's it. I'm going I'm to wipe them out. And Moses intercedes for them. He appeals to God's own character and the promises that God made to Abraham. And God says, fine, judgment will fall on the instigators, but I will show mercy and grace. And in, this happens in chapter 32 and 33 and 34. And in 34, through the end of the chapter, they, they actually go and they execute on these construction plans to build the tabernacle where God's holiness is going to dwell in the midst of an unholy or sinful people. And, and at the end of the book of Exodus, Moses goes to the entrance of the tent of meeting, but he's unable to go in. He can't go into the presence of a holy God, and it just leaves it kind of as a cliffhanger. And the question is, how can a sinful people dwell in the midst of a holy God? How can it be like, like it was in Eden, where we got to dwell and commune with God in his place once again? And that's what the book of Leviticus next week is all about. I commend it to you to read this week. It's 27 chapters of sacrifice and ceremonial laws and sprinkling blood and and this and that, and as you read it, like if you made it through the end of Genesis or Exodus, you, you got to Leviticus and you're like, this is weird. But it really, it answers the question, how can sinful people dwell in the presence of a holy God? And here's the point as you study it. We do not come to God on our own terms. We come to God on the terms that he has laid out for us. And the whole point of Leviticus points to a sacrifice that will atone for their sin. Where we see in bulls and goats and lambs, we will ultimately see in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a little bit of a spoiler for you, but I would invite you to come back as we dive into Leviticus next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it shapes and forms us. God, thank you that you have invited us into the good life. 
I pray that we would obey you, not to earn your favor or to put you into our debt, but because you are good and you invite us to the good life. God, I pray that you would, you would cut through the lies that says, in order to be happy, I need to defy you and determine right and wrong myself. Lord, we have failed, but Jesus is a far better Savior than our failure. And so we, we pray in his name. Amen.